This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. And welcome to a bonus Friday episode of Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lala Erikoglu. Hello! Last summer, travelers flocked to national parks to varying levels of success, with some parks facing overcrowding concerns while playing host to irresponsible visitors. This year, with travel across the U.S. opening up, even more travelers are expected to head out to some of America's most beautiful natural destinations. To help prepare you for a national parks trip and ensure you're visiting both your park of choice and its surrounding community responsibly, we're joined by Diane Schober, Executive Director of Wyoming Office of Tourism and traveler contributor Emily Pennington, who has visited 61 of the U.S.'s 63 national parks. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm stoked to be here. Me too. Thanks. To start things off, I'm interested to know how both of you developed your own relationship with the outdoors. And also, what were some of your own learning curves as you had more and more adventures? Well, I was born and raised in the great outdoors from Wyoming, and Wyoming is the most uh, least populated state in the nation, so certainly a lot of wide open space here. Um, Raised on a family ranch and went to college at the University of Wyoming, so uh, I've lived my life in this great wide open space and took uh, 10 years and lived in Chicago, but right back here in Wyoming is where I am now, and you know, every day is an adventure in in the great outdoors. I think one of the most interesting things about living in the American West is you do have these beautiful wide open spaces. And so it can be a weekend, a day trip, or a week-long vacation uh, right here in our own backyard. And we have these great experiences uh, that, you know, you just get to enjoy and they're breathtaking and and inspiring um, all in the same package. Uh, Diane, you mentioned that you I had lived in Chicago for 10 years before you went back to these wide open spaces. Do you think you were conscious of craving that sort of space and being out in the outdoors when you were surrounded by the concrete of a city? Absolutely. I used to drive to work going down Lakeshore Drive and I would look at all the high rises, which I loved. I loved that city. I still love that city. But I would think, okay, those are the Tetons. Lake Michigan could be Yellowstone Lake or Jackson Lake. Uh, You know, I would just always envision like, what would be my view or what would be the skyline if I were back in Wyoming? And Emily, what was your experience like uh, developing your relationship with the outdoors when you were younger and, and through now? I feel like mine is so different than Diane's. I, I did not grow up in an outdoorsy family. Um, I actually got really into the outdoors in my late 20s when a boyfriend who was an Eagle Scout took me on my first backpacking trip to Sequoia National Park. 
and um, I just fell in love with going on these grand adventures, especially in the backcountry where you're really far away from other people and really having to rely on literally what you can carry on your own back. And it's funny because um, once that relationship ended, I found myself returning to these same wild spaces over and over again to find kind of transformational healing. So it's kind of funny that someone who introduced me to the outdoors actually also introduced me to something that would heal me from the breakup itself. So I've had this very um, kind of personal and emotional connection to the outdoors as I've uh, been in my late 20s, early 30s. And just to kind of stick with that second part of the question, kind of the learning curves when you were getting out in the outdoors, you know, Emily, you said that you didn't grow up in an outdoorsy family. What were some of the rookie mistakes you were making? Oh, goodness. Um, Overestimating how many miles I could do in a day. Um, Underestimating how hot 80 degrees is when it's sunny. (laughs) Um, What else? My first backpacking trip, I think I brought like a leather jacket and a child's sleeping bag. And we tried to cram two people into a one person tent, which is not a good idea. Like you will be sleeping on top of each other in a pile. So um, lots of mistakes like that. I've bonked a lot. I think figuring out nutrition was a journey for me in the outdoors and and also figuring out a layering strategy for winter sports or for colder hikes um the three layering strategy I would highly recommend it to anyone but it took me uh, at least a year to figure that out when you guys both look at how many people have been exploring the outdoors in the last year and a half new people people returning to the outdoors people who've always been in the outdoors What advice do you have for them going out into national parks, state parks, open spaces this summer specifically, whether they're RVing or camping um, or just taking a day trip? I feel like this summer, especially with the National Park Service, expecting literally the busiest year in the history of the National Park Service, um, I think that it's more important than ever to plan ahead especially the top 10 parks, parks like Yellowstone and Yosemite and Acadia, those campgrounds become available four to six months in advance and they book up almost immediately. So planning ahead, making sure you have your lodging booked so that you're not scrambling the week before is going to be really essential. I think utilizing tools like hip camp and even outdoorsy for like campsites and van and RV rentals are also going to be really crucial because a lot of the more traditional avenues are are being taken up by by more experienced campers unfortunately and so so much of what the national parks have to offer is already booked um but then I would also suggest looking at a map, taking out a map of where all the national parks are in the country or even the state parks and seeing what's close to you that maybe you haven't heard of and Googling a few photos because there are so many hundreds of national park service sites within the country. I think there's 417 or something like that. And we tend to focus on the 63 main national parks, but The truth is there's probably something much closer to you and you can probably get that nature dose uh, much easier in a much less crowded place if you just do a little research. So Emily, you are a perfect spokesperson for that. As you said so well, Emily, there's not an infinite supply of developed camping or um, or even hotel or wherever you are. And so not only know before you go, but book before you go. It's such an important part of the overall equation. And I mean, here in Wyoming, we 51% of our state is on public lands. So when we think about traveling to the great outdoors, we often think of national parks, 
because they're sort of these icons of nature. And, you know, who doesn't want to go see Yellowstone or sit at the, you know, the base of the Grand Tetons and looking up at at that beautiful skyline. But um, adjacent to all of these national parks, predominantly our National Forest Service lands. And all of those camping spots are done through rec.gov, our state parks, Um, As Emily so well said, offer up some beautiful outdoor recreation areas, um, especially like if you're interested in water sports or water recreation. A lot of our state parks are um, next to beautiful reservoirs and have a lot of great outdoor water recreation. So I just think knowing before you go and understanding that different places mean different things. Like some may be more primitive campsites. Some may offer up electricity. There may be places that don't have uh, regular bathrooms, but you're using outdoor toilets. You need to be prepared to take out everything that you bring in. And, you know, the saying of take only pictures and leave only footprints. And that really is, you know, what we want folks to do. I think it's just such an important part of understanding where you go so you really can be Um, one with these great outdoors and engage in the healing principles that being alone in the wilderness can bring to someone. But um, yeah, we just want our, we want visitors and residents to take up that promise to let's keep these wild places wild. You know, usually it goes without saying, but a really helpful addition to that mantra would be uh, leave only footprints on paths. Because I, <laughs> yeah, only footprints on the places where you're supposed to walk. Yes, yeah, that are set for you. You're exactly right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we might all need that reminder this year. While this might be an obvious question, but for people who truly aren't familiar with the outdoors, why should you stick to the trails and to the designated paths? Why is that important both for the park itself and for the communities that you're entering into? Well, you know, there's such fragile ecosystems. And so if you think of this beautiful place like Yellowstone National Park, which to me is if you could go beneath the crust of the earth, that's what you would see. But a place like Yellowstone brings all of that right to the surface. And and you have the largest collection and concentration of geysers, of active geysers and geothermal features, and even flora and fauna, like, you know, plants and, and wildlife and, and all of these things. And it's just this delicate balance of nature. And, uh, you know, it, and it all, one, one little mar can affect so many things. It has the ripple effect. And when you go there and you see them and you're so inspired by what you see and you're sometimes overwhelmed by wow, look at the color of this boiling water. Or if you're there in winter and you're seeing, you know, bubbling mud next to a snowdrift, uh, but you just really want to keep all of that intact. And and that's really what I think all of us who want to be in the great outdoors, we want to be able to preserve it for ourselves and other generations and other visitors, you know, folks before us have done so. And we need to continue to do the same thing. Yeah, I was I was going to add to that and say that a really great example is um, in Moab, which many people consider to be a desert environment and um, is obviously surrounded by both Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. Um, they have this saying that's don't crack the crust, um, which means don't walk off trail. And I believe they're called cryptobiotics. Um, they have this cryptobiotic soil that takes centuries for these little microscopic organisms to build up in. And so literally any one footprint outside of a path um, near Moab or in one of those national parks could be damaging an ecosystem that maybe you can't see with your naked eye, but it's there and it's really essential for the plants and animals that call that place home. You know, we're talking about negative ripple effects, but I feel like there are positive ripple effects to be had in visiting these areas. And I think, you know, A lot of people, when they plan 
a trip to the outdoors. It's usually part of a road trip or a weekend, a quick weekend away. A lot of the times you're planning, you know, to pop in and out of these places as a quick stopover, um, you know, hit the main sites and then head on to the next location. But you can have a really positive effect on the community if you are a responsible, respectful visitor who is spending money in the right places. You know, what choices can we make when we travel to make sure we're investing in the local communities that are set up around these natural destinations and state and national parks? I think it's like when, and, you know, anytime we travel, everyone's like, what's local? What's the best place? Where's the best restaurant? Where, you know, where do you go? And that really can be in communities all around adjacent to national parks or on your way to and from, depending on what your final destination is, just really to enjoy the journey and to embrace it at every step because you don't ever know what really wonderful, unexpected experiences could be right there before you. I'm sure that all of us have had that when we've been traveling that, you know, those are the things that we really remember the most is what is uh, unexpected. And uh, I just think that, you know, engaging with people and learning about them and their own natural setting and being open to, you know, to these different environments and cultures. And it's just really, really important. And, you know, quite honestly, tourism and travel is such a large economy for our country and for the world. And in uh, in the American West, where you know we have so many small towns, um, even if you're stopping for lunch or a tank of gas, or maybe you're spending the afternoon, that's contributing to the well-being of those local communities. So it just is important to to take it all in and enjoy that journey. Yeah, I was going to say on 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 my journey to going to most of the national parks last year, there are gateway communities outside pretty much every single national park and um, if you can remember to try to hit up the local diner or brewery instead of going to mcdonald's or something things like that can be really invaluable ways to help the local communities there and, and help make sure that you're not only supporting the parks but supporting the people who live near them i feel like we maybe touched on this ever so slightly earlier but over tourism is a major issue that isn't just affecting national parks and other outdoor spaces, but also small towns that haven't had the investment or the infrastructure to support tons of visitors suddenly flocking in, especially in summers like this when people are so much more engaged with the outdoors and desperate for those spaces. How do we go about preventing that overcrowding? And how do both of you plan visits or encourage people to plan visits that make sure that you're seeing highlights but also finding lesser known paths at the same time. One thing I always tell friends of mine or people who ask me a similar question is that I feel like national park rangers are one of the most underutilized resources, especially in the internet age. I think that often we're so afraid to uh, to pick up the phone or to walk up to an information desk. Um, we're so much quicker to Google something on our phones. But honestly, some of the best and least crowded, more off the beaten path trails and, and hikes that I found have been through just going up to rangers and asking them, hey, you know, I wanted to see these three really popular things, but I have time to do a four mile hike later today. What would you recommend? And so often they're going to give you a gem that is just as beautiful as as the top sites, but it's not going to be, quote unquote, Instagram famous. And so you might only see two or three other people while you're out there. It's, it's interesting in, uh, in a, you know, such a popular park like Yellowstone, um, you really only about 
20% of the visitors actually get off the main roads and go into the backcountry. And the backcountry is very accessible. I am not an avid, you know, I'm going to scale the grand um, in my next adventure, but I do like to get out and hike. And and you can do that at any variety of, of levels. And I think, it, it, you know, we touched on it a little bit before about knowing before you go, but then also planning ahead, like maybe think about a shoulder season. Like, should I go earlier in the summer, in the spring, or should I wait until fall? Um, what about maybe maybe I'll go earlier in the morning rather than the middle of the day? Um, so you can really start to plan around some of these um, these impacts. And if you are, you know, solo travelers are always, I think it's fun to be a solo traveler. But if you can travel with others where you're reducing even the number of automobiles to go to a trailhead or you rely on some kind of group transportation once you get there, there's a variety of things that you can do to, to avoid that overcrowding. And then plan your trip so that maybe there's something that's equally as spectacular through a national forest that you wouldn't you know, have to go um, into a more well-known area. And there are certainly through um, the Forest Service websites, through BLM, through tourism information offices, through, uh, before you get there that you can do this planning and see. And, and then when you're on the ground, stay connected to the extent that you can. I mean, some of these places you don't have cell service. So you really do. It's important that you understand what you're doing ahead of time. Yeah. And just to just to piggyback on what Diane said, um, I, I'm someone who's done both Old Faithful and Half Dome at sunrise. And it is incredible because you get the best photos with the soft light. Um, and literally just an hour later, it was so much more crowded. But if you can really grit your teeth and set an alarm before the sun rises when it's still dark outside and drink some coffee, you'll definitely be rewarded with way fewer crowds. And also, I'd like to plug the fact that the National Park Service just launched a new app, which has a lot of downloads so you can download trail maps or you could download activities that you want to do you can create little bullet point lists for yourself within your phone and you could download them for offline use so that's another great tool that people can be utilizing this year as they venture into the parks but maybe won't have cell service when they get there do you sometimes wake up with the desire to understand the seen and the unseen forces guiding you through this life and are you ready to begin uncovering the impacts of these forces in your day to day? Do you feel that you could use a little push, a little umph, or maybe even a little juju to be reminded of your power within your ancestors to truly understand you? Well, child, so it sounds like you need a little juju podcast in your life. Hey, bays, I'm your host, Juju Bay. Welcome, Aquaba, bienvenidos to the Womanist Witchy Insight Show, diving deep into the Black healing journey, pop culture juju, and the ancestral spiritual systems that can help get us free. So please come on over and join the ALJ Pod family. New episodes drop every single Wednesday, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. 
there's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tyres, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Staying on the subject of overcrowding just a little bit longer, Diane, from a kind of an industry perspective, how is Wyoming preparing for the summer crowds now that we've passed Memorial Day? Well, you know, the good part about Wyoming is that we've we've always had these wide open spaces and there were certainly volumes of visitors with us last year um, and we're expecting and and looking forward to welcoming a lot of visitors again this summer but i think we will find that there may be fewer impacts than what we would be anticipating is a we started out the summer and even through the summer not everything was ever fully open you know, to the extent that Yellowstone National Park or Grand Teton National Park, they were open, but they didn't have all of their lodging facilities open or many of the service providers. Uh, if you wanted to go whitewater rafting or if you wanted to go fly fishing, uh, a lot of those providers were operating on limited hours. And so you'll start to see some of that being relieved because you can have others help you with it. Also in the summer of 2020, Wyoming was one of the few places that didn't ever really shut down. And so, you know, we saw a lot of people coming here because they knew that we had wide open spaces and that they could come and travel here. But I think this year, what's beautiful about the summer of 21 is places like Wyoming will still be high on someone's list because of our natural outdoors and the beautiful scenic uh, vistas that we offer. But, you know, throughout the United States, there's going to be a lot of other places where people can go and enjoy one of the, uh, I think what there's 439 actual units in the National Park Service, be it national monuments or parks or national historic sites, all beautiful pieces there. And and to the big um, 63 parks that Emily mentioned, you know, maybe those might be higher on the attention of some, but there's really so many great places that you can see. You know, we've been talking a lot about summer travel, but you mentioned shoulder season earlier, Diane. Can you talk to us a little bit about Wyoming shoulder season? And then, Emily, were there any parks that you went to last year during what would have been there, or in the past, what would have been their off season? And what were your favorites to discover during that time? And, you know, we often joke in Wyoming that we have two seasons, warm and cold. <laughs> so, uh, but really the, the shoulder seasons would be May, uh, end of April, May, and then uh, certainly I think October even now sort of falls as that extension of, of summer into the fall, but um, through November. Uh, not everything is open. You know, a lot of the activities, just because they're outdoor related activities, uh, you know, obviously whitewater rafting and, and uh, you, you know, you can't always fish in certain times of the year. You have to be cognizant of, of wildlife and what's happening. But the summer months are, you know, June, July and August are really the prime visitation months. 
So there's so many great places to visit, even when there's not full service there, to have some of these areas by yourself is spectacular. And I would just push hard for winter. I mean, a lot of people don't think about, you know, when uh, you live in these environments, many times you want to go to somewhere warm when it's winter. But if you will lean in, uh, one of the most spectacular views, Emily mentioned taking a picture of Old Faithful early in the morning. Uh, I've been to Yellowstone National Park numerous winters. You know, I usually, I try to go at least once a year into Yellowstone. But when Old Faithful erupts and it's freezing cold, the, the all of the moisture just crystallizes. And it's like these, you know, you're, you're getting these little crystals raining down around you. And you may have 10 other people standing on the boardwalk at that time. And the sounds of of the geysers and the animals and the swooshing of the wind and the pines, all of that is so much more magnified in these shoulder seasons. And it's, it, you know, you still can come fairly self-contained with service providers and others. You just have to be ready for that kind of adventure. And once you do it, you'll never forget it. And you'll be ready to say, I want to, I want to explore some of these again and, um, and keep looking for them. Um, yeah, a couple of parks came to mind when you first asked your question, um, Meredith. The first two that I thought of were um, Carlsbad Caverns and Big Bend in February, kind of going into that lean into winter idea. Um, I, I would say that most of the cave national parks in general, the caves stay a firm temperature the year round. So even if above ground is freezing or maybe raining, the cave is going to be a relatively pleasant place to be with a light jacket on. Um, so those national parks are pretty perennial or, or evergreen, <laughs> or however you want to say it. When I was in Big Bend in February, I had amazing temperatures. Um, I had many days of sunshine. I did a canoe trip and I was asking one of the river guides why it was so uncrowded and he was saying oh just wait till March it's gonna get spring break crazy around here but apparently in February there's this beautiful window where the temperatures are almost exactly the same but you're not getting inundated with all of those crowds looking for something to do with the kids over spring break and then um, lastly I would say that um, July I believe is the most popular travel month for Alaska and I purposely went in August and early September to try to avoid some of those crowds and also the nights start to get a little bit longer so you can kind of kill two birds with one stone and hopefully also see the northern lights if you can go at the very end of August beginning of September and wake up early in the morning so that's a, a fun little pro tip um, if you want to escape crowds in like gates of the arctic or Denali or something. I feel like I need to learn your early morning wake up ways Emily because I <laughs> We're going to have to do an entire new podcast just about how to wake up early to uh, explore because that is not my forte at all. Meredith, you can you can find equally as interesting things as you get closer to dusk. So if morning's not your time frame, there are some beautiful things that happen as dusk comes upon us, too. All right. Love this approach. Speaking my language. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, at the very beginning, we were talking about, uh, and it's kind of been brought up throughout the whole episode, but we're talking about, you know, national forests, state parks, that kind of thing. When you want to go somewhere that isn't necessarily a Yellowstone or a Moab or something like that, what are some of your favorite non-national parks to shout out that you think people haven't seen and that, and that they must? 
I think Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada is a really spectacular one. I mean, this is cheating, but the Redwood State Parks that border the National Park, frankly, I think are better than the National Park. Um, there's Hot two tape. or three of them that... <laughs> yeah, there's two or three of them that form a tapestry around actual Redwood National Park. Um, but those I would highly recommend as well. Don't just go to the National Park if you're going to go up there. And um, I believe in Oregon, Mount Hood is a state park as well. It's definitely not a national park. Those would probably be my picks. I, I do have some in some other states. Like I love Custer State Park and near Custer, South Dakota, just really, you know, nestled right there in, in the Black Hills. But just not far from Custer State Park is an area where I grew up just being, this is part of, um, we were talking about the outdoor experience and enjoying it, is Keyhole State Park. And it's in a beautiful little loop through um, the Black Hills National Forest. It's 20 miles from Devil's Tower National Monument. Um, you know, the Belfouche River runs through there. The geology and the color of the earth with these red iron rich walls that run along the banks of the Belfouche River um, are just spectacular. And so that's one of my most favorite places in Wyoming, sentimental and gorgeous. But then another area that is just, it really is a little gem in the center of Wyoming is Hot Springs State Park, a natural thermal hot springs with healing waters and just a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, lots, you know, to see and do in and around. And I consider, this is in a town, Thermopolis, Wyoming, uh, which is a gateway to a gateway. Thermopolis is a gateway to Cody, Wyoming, which is a gateway into Yellowstone. Uh, but just a great place to experience those th the thermal features, the natural hot springs, and, um, and, and a really, a town with only one stoplight. So a great place <laughs> to visit. I love a name like Thermopolis with thermal pools. That is just chef's kiss. Also, just having been trapped in a city for over a year, the sound of a town with only one stoplight just sounds absolutely heavenly. Diane just reminded me of one of my one of my other favorite national forest areas. So not technically a state park, but um, the Eastern Sierras um, and Lone Pine is literally a one light town. So you could get your fix. Um, the Eastern Sierra is on the opposite side of the Sierra Nevada mountain range from Sequoia, Kings Canyon and Yosemite National Park, which obviously get very crowded because they're very famous. Um, but there are so many amazing trailheads and alpine lakes you can hike to and adorable little wild west towns and things to do on the opposite edge of the same mountain range. The list of things I must do this summer no. and next summer and this fall and next fall and winter just keep growing. It's, it's the beauty um, of travel. It's, you know, know, you get excited about listening to others. I'm excited too about this. It's, I mean, it is like peeling an onion because as soon as you ask one recommendation, five more sprout out of it. Okay, so our final question for the two of you is we'd love to know what other women are doing incredible work in the outdoors to promote responsible exploring and a more inclusive environment. I would say there are a few people that I follow on Instagram who I know are really promoting and doing great work regarding inclusivity in the outdoors. Um, I would highly recommend following Intersectional Environmentalist. Um, 
Also, I read to Aurora. Um, she is working on increasing um, diversity within the van life movement. And um, Noelle Russ as well. Um, she is an excellent writer and she also um, is constantly posting about um, about more inclusive efforts. And lastly, um, Agnes Viansen, she founded this remarkable organization called the Eastern Sierra Conservation Corps, which specifically tries to take women of color from urban communities and put them on trail crews. So they spend an entire summer in the backcountry working on on trails and getting to have these amazing transformational natural experiences um, that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise had growing up. Diane, who who do you want to shout out? Well, there's, uh, I, I could take up another hour of our time together shouting out to so many great Wyoming women. I, I first of all want to just applaud all of the women who work in ranching and agriculture. They are the utmost in conservation. You know, they understand the land and how that we need to, you know, sustain these habitats for wildlife as well as for uh, ranching and others, but there's a couple of women that I've gotten to know over the last few years that I think have really are and continue to do really exceptional work. One is um, she's a mother. She's a young woman. She lives in Laramie, Wyoming, which is the home of the University of Wyoming. Her name is Rebecca Walsh, and she has an organization called Hike Like a Woman, and she brings women in from all over the world, essentially, and they'll hike through the Medicine Bow, through the Encampment Wilderness, the Continental Divide Trail. Um, and they're just enjoying the great outdoors. And it is a time of community where these women may be, and maybe they're, they need to, you know, they're, they're suffering and they need a place to come and heal and they want the community of women to be together or it's moms who just want to get away and have a break. Uh, but she's really utilizing her opportunity to bring women together in a way that uh, puts them out of some, many times their natural environment um, and then just embrace them. And so I, I really think that she's doing some really, really good work. And then uh, there's another young woman, Jessie Allen, her dad, her parents own the Diamond Four Allen Guest Ranch. It's outside of Lander, Wyoming, up in the beautiful Wind River Mountain Range. I mean, up above 9,000 feet. This is at a high, high elevation. And Jessie is, she's a young woman who, she's now their ranch manager. She graduated college from the University of Wyoming. She was Miss Wyoming in 2014, I believe. But she's back. She leads all women yoga retreats back up into the Wind River Mountains. Uh, she's a hunting guide and she's an outfitter and leading this. I mean, just a woman who is really, really embracing her Wyoming roots and, and introducing the great outdoors and wilderness to others. She also is um, does some work and, and is part-time faculty with the National Outdoor Leadership School, Knowles, well-renowned Knowles in Lander, Wyoming. So those are just two of a, a mile-long list of people that I would call out. But I think... You know, their home is here in Wyoming, so I'm going to give them a shout out uh, for special attention of women who are doing some great work. Amazing. Well, if people want to keep up with the work that you two are doing, where can they find you on the Internet, Emily? I am pretty much everywhere at Brazen Backpacker. Um, I'm a contributor to Condé Nast Traveler, and I also have a column about the national parks on Outside Online. Amazing. And Diane, where can people keep up with you and Wyoming? Well, they can follow us at TravelWyoming.com or visit Wyoming through Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter. We're, we're there for all of it. Um, I just, you know, 
yeah, all, all of the things where we can uh, try to bring our message and these inspiring, beautiful, wild places to the attention of others. And at the same time, encouraging mindful travel so that we can keep Wyoming safe and wild. Amazing. You can find me at Oh Hey There, Mayor. And me at Lale Hannah, and hopefully in one of these parks very soon. Very soon. <laughs> Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter. Links to both of those things and all of the things discussed today including the social media mentioned, will be linked in the show notes. Uh, So be sure to check it out. And thank you again both for joining us. And we'll talk to everyone else next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.